0: Please turn in your Bibles today to Luke 17, verses 11 through 19. Here's Pastor Mark with a message titled, The Deceitfulness of Unbelief. You know, as I read this passage this week, I was drawn to the simplicity of the text. And it should be noted that this is not a parable. This is a historical account. Luke, the writer of Luke, okay, was, in addition to being a physician was a historian. And when he set out to pen Luke and Acts, Luke says that he interviewed people who were eyewitnesses to the things that took place. So as we read Luke chapter 2, for instance, the, what is known as the Christmas story, right? It's believed that Luke received that account from Mary herself, that she was sharing with him, you know, what transpired the night of Christ's birth. And so here Luke is providing for us firsthand knowledge of a miracle um, that was dictated to him uh, by people who were with Jesus. And, And most biblical scholars, for the most part, will agree that part of this text being here deals with gratitude or maybe the contrast between gratitude and ingratitude but as i studied the text i started to realize there's so much more to the text that perhaps gets overlooked and we're going to take a look about that the first thing we see in this text there there are several things that we see in verses 11 through 19. number one in verses 11 and 12 we see a recognition of jesus jesus enters the village and immediately he's recognized In verse 13, we see a request that's made to Jesus. In verse 14, we see a response from Jesus. In verse 16, we see repentance in the sight of Jesus. In verse 17, we see a rejection of Jesus. Verse 18, I'm sorry. And verse 19, we see redemption through Jesus. So these are the things we're going to take a look at today within the respective text. But the question you got to ask yourself is, what makes this passage so important? Why is it so important? And as we look at the passage today, I'm going to ask you to take a look at the passage not as a 21st century Christian. I want to zero in as a 1st century person in Palestine. Sometimes we have a tendency to look at the uh, to look at the scriptures, and many times we look at the scriptures within modern day context. But if you really want to get the true meaning of the text, you need to look at it historically. You need to look at it literally as it's, as it's laid out in scripture. You need to look at it grammatically as it's laid out in scripture, and you need to look at it Historically, What is the historical context? So we're going to take a look at some of those things so that we could know the intent of the author. Why did the author feel that it was important to put it into the scriptural re- a record? That becomes critical for us. There is a tendency within the church today for people to become textualists. You know, we find the verse we like, we quote the verse we like, but even though, you know, it may not have anything to do with what you like. I always use the example of Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, plans to give you future, plans to give you hope. Everybody says, oh, that's my verse. Nobody ever takes the verse that all liars will find their way into the lake of fire. Nobody ever claims that verse, right? And so there is a tendency. So we want to be able to do that. We want to be able to do that. Um, and uh, consequently, uh, sorry about this, I apologize. So we want to be able to take a look at Now I'm going to share with you a few things. Number one, this account exposes... That many Christians, that many look to Christ, desiring that their personal issues and their personal maladies be addressed. Many people come to Christ, say, "I, I, I want you, Lord, to fix this respective issue. And then afterwards, many times, Christ is forgotten. I see this often. Oh, pray for me that blah, 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 blah. And you pray, and God answers the prayer. And There's nobody left to give thanks to God. But more important than this, this passage, what I really believe, in addition to showing gratitude, this passage exposes the deceitfulness of sin. It's deceitfulness, and we're going to see this. It is the deceitful effects of unbelief, and it is the leprosy of sin the contagiousness of sin, the disease of sin that's responsible. Sin is subtle. It is deceitful. That even after experiencing a supernatural miracle, only one person came back to give glory to God. Yes, this passage is about unbelief, and it is also contrasted by what true saving faith in Christ looks like. And so we want to jump into the text. We want to take a look at the text. We want to see from the text, the believer, the one who has been born again in Christ, is that person that when touched by Christ's amazing grace, is left forever changed. So let's jump into the text. Let's take a look at the text. And let's begin at verse 19 a recognition of Jesus, verse, uh, I'm sorry, verse 11. And it came about that while he was walking on the way to Jerusalem that he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. Jesus is traveling through Samaria and Galilee in an area that is known as Perea. And it's in Perea where a lot of the ministry of Luke takes place. In that area. Now, when Jews traveled in that region, they were very, very, very careful, diligent to avoid Samaria. Samaritans were despised by Jews. They were despised by Jews because they were considered half breed. It was Israel. The ten tribes that sinned. It was Israel who took wives from the Canaanites and from the people around them. It was Israel, those ten tribes, that began introducing idols into their homes despite the admonition of the prophets, despite the forbiddenness of the law, because they started taking wives that they shouldn't have taken from the outside world. And consequently, what they had were Multiple generations that were born underneath this, that were integrating pagan worship with the worship of Yahweh. As a matter of fact, in Jeremiah 23:13, the prophet says this: "Moreover, among the prophets of Samaria, I saw an offensive thing. They prophesied by baal and led my people astray." This is a terrible sin that started happening. And I'll tell you what, it takes just a little bit of poison to poison an entire drink. It takes a little bit of, of, of pollutants to pollutant, uh, pollute a whole water system, right? If, if I had a glass of clean, tall water here, and I put a little drop of poison in there, you wouldn't see that little drop. And what looks like is clean and good and, and able to satisfy the thirst is contaminated with poisons. When we go to the world and we integrate the practices of the world into the church, when we say, well, the world does this, therefore we could do this, when we integrate those things, we lose the purity of the gospel. This morning, as we were setting up this morning, I was talking to Janet and Ricky about a certain production that will remain nameless, but a certain production that I went to see at Christmas time, and I went with a bunch of other people, and as we walked out, you know, they said, What did you think? What did you think? Wasn't it great? Wasn't it great? And me in my very unique way said it was an abomination. I said the gospel that was presented there wasn't even the gospel. It just had a sprinkling of the gospel. It used gospel terminology, but it used it in a wrong way. And consequently, they integrated the culture, and they integrated the tradition, and they integrated the festivities from the world, sprinkled a little bit of gospel on it and called it Christian. Israel did that. If you read your Old Testament from Genesis on, what has always been the problem? It's been the pollutants from the outside the world that has come. We see this in John chapter 4. Remember when Jesus had the accountant with the what? The Samaritan woman. Jesus at this time was in Samaria. And remember he's sharing the gospel with her. And she, she says, sir, I perceive you might be a prophet. That was a pretty good call right he said hey you know go get your husband uh, i don't have a husband jesus says you're absolutely right you've had five husbands and the guy you're living with's not your husband and she goes sir i perceive you're a prophet and jesus said sharp but remember he she says to him this our fathers worship in this mountain mount gerizim our fathers who are the fathers The Samaritan fathers. The ones that had integrated. The ones that left Israel and integrated. Those are the fathers she's referring to. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, she says. But you people, who are the you people? You Jewish people. You people say that in Jerusalem is the place they ought to worship. Now I'm pointing this out because I want you to get the first century context. You have two... Tribes, Two people. One of the ones, the Israelites, that are called of God, the Jews, and the other ones are the Samaritans. And they don't like each other. We see other stories of this. The Good Samaritan. What was the Good Samaritan? Well, the priest walked by him. The Levite walked by him. Who helped the man who was beat up in the ditch? It was the Samaritan. The one who was despised. And so we see that, number one, there's a recognition of Jesus. Jesus is going through this region. He enters the village. Now he's met by ten lepers. And I want you to get this. This is pretty significant to the text. Leprosy in the Scripture is always representative of sin. Why? Because leprosy is a hideous disease. It eats away at the flesh from the inside out, eating away the nerves. There are accounts of people with leprosy whose feet fall off in the middle of the night. And they do not feel it because all the necrosis, all the dead skin, everything that, in, that is inside this disease eats away at the flesh until it wastes the way. Now, could you imagine? This is in the 21st century. But in first century Palestine, and according to the law, people with leprosy had to be outside the camp, outside the gate. They couldn't commingle. mingle The other thing that's really important about leprosy is it was thought that you received this disease because of some sin that you had done. So the thought process is if you were smitten with leprosy, it's because God is judging you in that moment for some type of sin that you had done. In fact, all sickness back then was thought that way. Remember when Jesus healed the blind man? Right? Right? And they come to Jesus, Father, who, uh, uh, a master who sinned, him or his parents, that this man was born blind. And Jesus said, neither. This man was born blind so that you'd see the glory of the Lord revealed. Now under the law and leprosy, people who had leprosy were required to stay a hundred paces away from anybody who was not smitten with the disease in addition if they were walking down a road and someone was coming in addition to maintaining a hundred paces distance they had to shout out that they were unclean so they would have to yell that they're unclean they're unclean to warn the people not to come any further could you imagine the stigma of this disease first of all you're it, 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 they were forbidden to be in the synagogue right because now they're ceremonially they're ceremonially unclean so they're spiritually sick they're physically sick they're rejected by family and friends and so people with leprosy would tend to gather together with other people who had leprosy and try to survive could you imagine you had to forage for food you had to like an animal you had to go forage for food and and try to have your clothes would be ragtag and filthy this is the condition there's also something else very interesting in the text that we're going to see in verse 12 we're going to see that it with 10 10 people with leprosy 10 in scripture is the number of completion in God so here we have 10 leprous people that are going to be coming out but yet it is here in verse 11 as he's passing through and in verse 12 as we see that there is a recognition of Jesus now just think about this Jesus's reputation literally had preceded himself Right? Because he's not in Jerusalem and he's not in Judea. He's in, in the region of Perea. But somehow they knew, here comes Jesus. And in verse 12, as he enters a certain village, we see the ten leprous men who stood at a distance, right? They stood at that hundred paces. They probably declared themselves unclean. But they thought nothing of crying out and coming to Jesus for help. Now, let me me swing this a little bit. Leprosy, I shared with you in the Scripture, is representative of sin. And just like leprosy is a, a disease that ultimately leads to death, and just like Usually they congregate with other lepers. So are so many people who are bound by the leprosy of sin. And when you're bound by the leprosy of sin, you're outside the camp. You're not here, you're not there with the Master. You're not able to come to the... To the found. We have a great privilege today as I started our service today by preaching. We get the glorious privilege to come into the house of God and to worship God. Don't ever let that be lost on you. We have been able to draw near for those of us that are in Christ, for those of us that have been washed with the blood of Jesus Christ. We get the unique privilege to come into the house of God to worship at the throne of God. Why? Because we're not covered with the leprosy of sin. We're covered in the precious and glorious blood of Jesus Christ. These people, these ten, which almost, you know, you could actually look at it and say the ten signifies the wholeness of humanity lost in sin. And there are many who are lost in sin, but they recognize Jesus at a distance many of them cry out to Jesus for help and i am reminded that many people have an encounter with jesus there are many that sit in fellowship in gospel proclaiming bible believing churches such as ours and they have an encounter with jesus they hear the gospel they sing the hymns they worship the lord they learn the christian vocabulary praise the lord amen hallelujah brother they pray they say their amens yes many have encounters with jesus but i'm going to share something because i believe this is where the passage takes us there is a deceitfulness to unbelief there is a deceitfulness in thinking those things in and of themselves are sufficient Listen, our Lord addressed this in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 and 22, where the Lord says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not perform many miracles? And the horrible response from the Lord is, Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness, for I never knew you. Yes, many people will have an encounter with Jesus on earth. Many can derive a sense of blessing from Jesus, feel so good after they've been with Jesus, but eventually they're going to have to give an account. I pray all the time, Lord, you know, one of the things that haunt me, and I think haunts any man who's a preacher of the gospel is, Lord, how many people have I preached to you that have not bowed the knee to Christ, that are deluded, that are under a false belief that they're right with God when in actuality they're not. Here we're going to see how this is possible. Take a look at verse 13. So verse 11 and 12, there's a recognition of Jesus. Verse 13, there's a request of Jesus. Verse 13 reads, And they raised their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. These men were not only physically sick from the disease, but they were also considered ceremonially unclean. And they make a profound request of Jesus. Have mercy on us, they cry out to him. Now in the area of leprosy, it should be noted that one of the first areas they say that begins to change is your voice. Your voice gets weaker with leprosy. So they must have mustered every amount of energy because the Scripture says they raised their voice. This was it. This was their shot. The healer was here. They raised their voice. Master, have mercy upon us. And here they recognize Jesus. And I'll tell you, that's very much like the people who are sick with sin. Who have heard the proper proclamation of the gospel. Who have heard that there's forgiveness and mercy in Christ. Who cry out many times, Father! Father! Forgive me. Father, have mercy on me. I tell people all the time, they say, well, what do I got to do to be saved? I said, you want no simple, a simple truth here? Cry out to God for mercy. Father, have mercy on me, a sinner. Have mercy on me, Father. I sit under your judgment. Father, have mercy on me. I've rebelled against you. Father, have mercy on me. Father, forgive me. Father, and cleanse me. I love Todd's testimony, very similar to my testimony, in that we were both raised in Christian homes. We both thought we were good. We both thought we had it all together. Everybody else was messed up, but we were right with God until God gives us the crisis of the encounter. Have you been there? Have you had the crisis of the encounter? When it's you and God one-on-one? when the Spirit of God reveals the wickedness and the sinfulness of your heart, when you're taken back by what you see and all you could gasp and realize that you are sinful before a holy and righteous God and all you can do is cry out and say, Lord, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. The church needs today What most people who identify themselves as Christians need today is to come into that crisis of an encounter with God and to see themselves as God sees us. And in verse 13, they have a request of Jesus. Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Have mercy. Look at verses 14 and 15. We see a response, a very unique response from Jesus. Verse 14, and when he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priest. And it came about that as they were going, they were cleansed. Now one of them, when he had saw that he had been healed, turned back. Glorifying God with a loud voice. Now, minimally, they're at a hundred paces from Jesus. Master, have mercy on us. You would have thought Jesus would have said, Be. That's not what Jesus said, right? Go show yourselves to the priest. What, What an odd. What an odd statement. Go show yourselves. To the priest. Jesus does this because the law required that a priest certify those who are healed from leprosy. The law required that. But there's a problem nobody was being healed of anything since Jesus came, uh, before Jesus came. Those priests weren't certifying that anyone was healed of leprosy. But Christ came not to abolish the law, but Christ came to fulfill the law. And so could you imagine as these men, as they're walking and they go to the priest, I, I, I just wonder what went through their head. Have mercy on us. I'm sure tears filled their eyes. Have mercy on us. Have mercy on us. And the Lord said, go show yourself to the priest's. He didn't say, go show yourself to the priest and on the way you're going, you're going to be healed. He said, just go show yourself to the priest. And we know, through the Scripture text, that they turn around and they're heading there. They're heading there. I think also what was behind the Lord's instruction as well as fulfilling the law of God was to show the priest that I am indeed God and I have authority even over the most insidious disease you could imagine I Christ have authority to heal. So when these 10 lepers come and they are healed and they are cleansed and there is no sign of leprosy, it will testify to those priests that one greater than Moses has come, one greater than Elijah has come, for Messiah has come bringing healing in His wings. We know here, looking at it, verses 14 and 15, that indeed he did answer their request. Because verse 14 tells us that it came about that as they were going, they were cleansed. You notice the term, it wasn't they were healed, they were cleansed. They were cleansed from the filthiness and the corruption of leprosy. How many times has the enemy done this to you? He does it to me all the time. But how many times the enemy have done this to you? You might be alone reading a good book. You might be just alone having some quiet time. You may be working in your yard, whatever the circumstance. And your mind is filled with images of your past life and your past sin. And He overwhelms you. Remember this? Remember that? Oh, remember what a good time you had back then with so-and-so? Remember when you used to do this? Remember when you used to do that? And your mind begins to drift, and you start thinking about all your past life and your past sin, and then all of a sudden comes a deep, deep conviction of that. And the enemy would speak into your heart, where's your God? Who are you kidding? You think there's forgiveness for what you did? There's no forgiveness. God still holds that over your head. God still holds that unbelief. God still holds that fornication. God still holds that lust. God still holds that adultery. God still holds that theft. God still holds that time you curse that person out. God's still holding that. And you are going to pay. You're going to reconcile for that. But when we were lost in our trespasses and sins, Christ made us alive together with Him for by grace we have been saved. And that marvelous, magnificent grace of God cleanses us, as John the Apostle says, of all sin. See, when a person comes to faith in Christ, they are cleansed. It doesn't matter what they did. They could have been the most heinous, most wretched criminal. When they come in repentance and faith to Christ, there is new life in Christ. People like to talk about grace. They love to talk about grace. We hear so much about grace, 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 but we hear about grace in its wrong context. Grace is amazing because we sit under the judgment of God. Grace is amazing because we don't deserve the blessings of God. Grace is amazing because He can only take a black heart and make it white. The prophet Isaiah said it well in Isaiah chapter 1, Come let us reason together, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though your sins be red as crimson, they shall be white as wool. Here in verses 14 and 15, the lepers, as they head to the priest, they heeded the Word of Jesus as they head to the priest. On the way to the priest, they are healed. And Christ in His magnificent mercy responds to their request. But there was something different here. You see, there were ten that were sick. There were ten that were healed. But only one recognizes that they need to give glory to God. Many come into the church, the Scripture tells us, and they taste of the goodness of the Gospel and the pleasure of the Lord. Hebrews 6, 4-7 says this, For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, And have tasted the good Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away. It is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify themselves to the Son of God. Listen, 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 church. The writer of Hebrews tells us that there are those who come into the church and he uses terms like enlightened, tasted, and partaked. Enlightened means to shine, to give light. They've been illuminated. To taste means to taste. To experience, to partake means that they're partners and associates. But these are never terms that are used for salvation in the Scripture. So what is the writer of Hebrews saying? If you come into the church, if you hear the gospel message, if you partake, if you fellowship with the brothers and the sisters, you hear the good word of the Lord, but you indeed reject the word of the Lord, then there is nothing left. There is no sacrifice. There is no atonement. Because you must come by faith. You must come by faith and repentance and faith and throw yourself on the mercy of God. It goes back to the point that I previously said. The terror in my heart is how many have heard the word of God but will not bow the knee in repentance thinking that their participation, their membership, their good deeds is sufficient for salvation but you must come and you must repent from your sins and entrust yourself completely and wholly to Christ. If you fail to do that, there is no other sacrifice. These folks, these ten lepers, they experience the goodness of God, don't they? Hey, they're on their way to show the priest and they're cleansed of leprosy. They experience God's common grace, friendship with the church, perhaps They, you know, perhaps people in the church participate in various ministries, do good deeds. They are benefactors. They are benefactors of the gospel. But if they are not born again, this is wood, hay, and stubble. Listen, a prime example was Judas. Did you know that Judas healed the sick? Did you know that Judas cast out devils? Did you know that Judas preached the gospel? Did you know on that last Passover night, as Jesus said, "One of them shall betray you"? That the other apostles, none of them were thinking, "It's Judas for sure. That guy's a dirtbag." That wasn't happening. They're all, "Is it me, Lord? Is it me, Lord? Is it me, Lord?" Judas didn't many good deeds. Judas spent three and a half of his years, he gave it all up and he followed Christ. He preached the gospel. Judas was a zealot. so I bet you when he preached the gospel, he preached the gospel. And yet Judas of him, Jesus said, "Did I not choose 12?" one of you' is a devil. Oh, there is this deceitfulness to unbelief that comes. The deceitfulness to unbelief that happens is, oh, because I do such good work. Oh, I'm such a good guy. I've, been, I've followed the Lord in Christian baptism. I go to church eight days a week. I do this. I pray 400 hours a day. There is a deceitfulness to unbelief. And that deceitfulness is you're always good in and of yourself. being healed, participating in certain activities in the church, being a member of a church, having had a Christian baptism. Listen, that's not signs of true repentance. But rather those who come back and fall at the feet of the Savior, who repent of their sins, who entrust themselves completely and wholly to Christ. Oh, church, who hunger and thirst for righteousness. who know only that Jesus satisfies, who have been crucified with Christ. Only these will be saved. So we see that in verses 14 and 15, Jesus gives them a response in verse 16. We see repentance in the sight of Jesus. Look at what this One leper who is healed, not only did he return, but what did he do? He fell on his face, at his feet, giving thanks to him. And note this little annotation in the text. And he was a Samaritan. While the ten lepers went off as Jesus commanded to see the priest, ten were healed. But only one saw fit to return to Christ and give glory to God. Listen, what you're seeing here is a little bit of scandalousness in the Gospel. You see the other nine? The other nine were children of Israel. This one is called a Samaritan. He's the half-breed. He's the despised one. He's the one that shouldn't have anything to do with God because they're heretics and they're pagans and everything else. And here we see Jesus contrast true saving faith, true belief against unbelief. And how do we know that? Well, we see the repentance in his heart because he comes to Christ and he falls on his face at his feet. Listen, this is significant, significant verse. I don't want you to lose this. This is a significant verse for anyone who claims that Jesus is not God. This is the humblest form of Worship. When you fall at the feet, no one in first century Palestine would worship anyone or anything in this manner other than God. It would have been considered blasphemy. And notice that Jesus, notice this, notice that Jesus does not rebuke him. He does not reprove him for doing so. Here we see the repentant sinner. This is you and me. If you've ever had that encounter with God, if you ever had that encounter with Jesus, when it hits you, when you get to that place and you go, Father, I repent, I'm dust, and you, and you fall at the feet. We see this elsewhere in Scripture. You don't have to turn there, but in John eleven thirty two, 32, Mary, when Jesus shows up after Lazarus dies, Scripture records Mary falls at Jesus' feet when Jesus shows up. In Mark 5.33, the woman healed with the issue of blood falls at the feet of Jesus after being healed. Jesus never rebukes her. He never says, don't do that. But yet we see in Acts 10.25, when Peter shows up and the Holy Spirit falls at Cornelius' house, Cornelius falls at the feet of Peter. And what does Peter do? Hey, get up, brother. Don't you do that to me. I'm just another man. We even see after Jesus' resurrection when, the, when, the, when the, the 11 are gathered and Jesus appears into the, into the room and Thomas, you know, he just wouldn't believe. He would not believe. He said, ah, forget about it. You guys are nuts. I'll believe it when I'm able to stick my hand into his, into his side and see those nail prints by himself and Jesus appears into the room. And he says, hey, Go ahead. You want to stick your hand in my side? Go ahead. Go ahead. Touch the nail scars. What does Thomas do? The Bible says he falls at his feet and he says, my Lord and my God. And he bows at the feet and worship Jesus. Only God receives that kind of worship. This is recorded in the Holy Record because this Samaritan, this cast-off, not only was he leprous, but this man was also a cast-off from Israel. This cast-off found true saving salvation through Jesus Christ. What was the impact on his life? It wasn't that he was healed of leprosy. It is he was healed of sin. He had indeed now become set free from the bondage and the yoke of sin. And this just reaffirms what John said at the beginning of his Gospel in John 1.11 that he came unto his own and his own received him not. Could you imagine how scandalous this sounds? To a Jewish person in the first century? Lord, a Samaritan is saved, but the Israelites are not? How could that be? Despite the healing, despite the mercy to his very own, They were satisfied with their healing. The other nine were satisfied with their healing. That's it. I asked you to heal me. Heal me. Okay, it's good. I'm going to keep on going on my merry way. I say this time and time and time again. One of the problems in the church is people want the blessings of God, but they don't want God. Father, heal me. Father, I want the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Father, do this, do that, do the other thing. Oh, Lord, I need this new promotion. I need this, I need that, my bank account. Lord, oh boy. And you know what's a sad thing? A sad thing is we hear in the church, oh, God's really blessed you, boy. He got you, you got that bigger house? Oh, God really blessed you. He really gave you that uh, promotion you were looking for. God really blessed you. And what do people come? They keep coming and say, I want more, I want more, I want more. That's why on a Wednesday night prayer meeting, We have some ground rules. And the ground rules are, hey, leave your requests for yourself at home. God knows them. We're here to do a few things. Worship God, praise God, intercede for the church, and pray for repentance. Four things. That's it. Ever wonder why most prayer meetings degenerate into laundry lists of requests? Because there's a preoccupation with self. But when we come like the Samaritan, fall at the feet of Jesus. So that's, that's, that's my heart's desire on the Wednesday night prayer meeting is that we fall at the feet of Jesus. And we cry out to Jesus. And we pray Jesus. Look at verses 17 and 18. As the Samaritan came and he fell on his face, we notice that there's a rejection of Jesus. Verse 17, and Jesus answered, were there not ten cleansed, but the nine, where are they? Was no one found who turned back to give glory to God except this foreigner? Except this outcast? Here we see a rejection of Jesus. The nine other lepers refusal to give glory to God. Listen, if you pray for things, let me share this with you. If you pray for things and the Lord answers your prayer, please, I implore you, give glory to God. If you're sick and God brings healing to you, don't tell your friends who are outside the Lord hey, I'm just feeling better, you know, things got better for me and things took, you know. No, say, I prayed and I asked God to heal me and God touched my body. When you're faced in a circumstance and there's nowhere to go and you ask of the Lord and the Lord hears, give glory to God. Failure to give glory to God is a serious, serious sin. But I'll share something else too. Failure to give glory to God in this case that Jesus is talking about. This is the signature sign of unbelief. That is the signature sign of unbelief. Unbelief does not submit itself to God. Listen to Romans. There we go, Paul, uh, Todd. Listen to Romans 8 6. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. Be, listen up here, because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not able to do so. Hebrews 11:6. What does that tell us? Without faith, it is impossible to please God, for he who comes to God must believe that He is. And that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. Note that the term because He did not give glory to God is the true worship of the living God despite begging for mercy, despite begging for cleansing, despite begging for healing. They did not feel compelled to give glory to God. Oh! They rejected Jesus. Isn't that incredible? The nine that were healed rejected Him. And the text is not merely testifying to their ingratitude, but rather it is testifying to their unbelief. Here was Jesus in the midst, God in flesh, not only bringing the mercy and the compassion, not only were they touched supernaturally by His healing power, but upon being healed, the nine did not render to give glory to God. It's like so many who come into the church, who participate, who love the ritual, who have built deep friendships, but they come into the church and they do not give glory to God. And unbelief is problematic. And it's really problematic in a cultural church. There are many who are impacted by the grace of God in a positive way. Many who reap benefits and the blessings of the church, but yet who will not commit themselves to the church, or worse yet, will not commit themselves to Christ. And in doing so, they reject christ but praise god the story doesn't end here verse 19 there's redemption in jesus and he jesus said to them rise and go your way your faith has made you well we see in this account how scandalous the gospel that jesus preached was That upon this great supernatural miracle, it is only a Samaritan, only a foreigner, only a half-breed, only a despised person from a despised people that goes back and gives glory to God. Yet this despised Samaritan, upon healing, immediately returns to worship at the feet of Christ. And listen, that's true of any of us who have come to faith in Christ. What do you think? You were favored by God? I don't know any Messianic Christians in our church. We're all pagan Gentiles. Many of us descendant of the Roman Empire. We were cast off. We were lost in our trespasses and sins. But praise God that Christ made us alive together with Him. And when we get to that place, oh my goodness, the glory of falling at the feet of Jesus. You know, one of the things I look forward to in death, to be honest, Barbara gets mad. She says I talk way too much about death. Thank God she's in nursery. But you know what I look forward to in death? Honestly, fallen at the feet of Jesus. Fallen at the feet of Jesus. I don't think that I have the vocabulary nor the mental ability to give God the glory that he deserves. And I think of how often I fail at that. How does the average person down the street could just annoy me? look at that clown over there. But oh, the glory of one day for those that are in Christ to come to that place where we shall see Him as He is and we will fall at His feet. In worship, a worship that is pure, unadulterated, uncorrupted by sin, uncorrupted by the flesh, we will fall at his feet. And I don't know, they got to have some jaws of life in heaven because somebody's got to pry me off of the feet of Jesus when I see him. Why digress? Notice what Jesus says to him. He says, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Now, I'm going to show you through the text. I'm going to show you through the text that what Jesus was talking about was not, hey, your faith, your positive thinking, you you believed, you know, the positive thinking made you healed. Because if you look at the original text, that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus says to him right here, he says, get up off the ground. Now you can go your way. Your faith, and that's the first question, what faith? So what faith? Is it what everybody says today? Oh, I have my faith, I have my faith. You know, it's my faith that keeps me going. I have my faith. Is it, is it, I believe, yes, Jesus, I believe you're going to heal me. I believe you're going to heal me. I believe, there is no doubt. There is no But Is that what he's talking about? That's not what he's talking about. It is the faith of the encounter with Christ that he threw himself, that he realized that he was the one and true living God. And Jesus says to him here, it is that similar faith of Abraham That Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Why? Because salvation is always by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Just think this little Samaritan in the first century was 1,500 years before the Reformation thinking, oh my goodness, here it is. It is through Christ. This is him. This is the Messiah. But I want to call your attention to the last word. He says, your faith has made you well. The Greek word there for well is sozo. Sozo refers to salvation, wholeness. What Jesus is saying, your faith has rendered you saved. You found Christ you have been born again you have and you are experiencing new birth oh Samaritan man this goes way past the cleansing of leprosy not only is your skin cleansed but your soul is cleansed free from the leprosy of sin. Oh, this is a glorious, I said in the very beginning, it contrasts the deceitfulness of unbelief with what true saving faith in Christ looks like. The ones who should have been the authors of salvation reject. The ones who should have nothing to do with the living God, with Jehovah, with Yahweh, come in repentance and are saved. And I submit to you, if you are in Christ, such are you and I. But I also have to say this. If the context of your relationship with God is in what you do, and how you do it, And it is devoid of redemption. And it is devoid of repentance. And let me share something else. If you are not compelled to give glory to God with your life, if you are not compelled and not hungering and thirsting after God, without faith it is impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God, as the writer of Hebrews 11:6 6 says, must believe that He is and He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. Do you seek after Him? Do you desire Him? Do you love Him? On your death, are you waiting to fall at the feet of Jesus? Or are you looking for the streets of gold and i got a mansion above the hilltop? Church, this is zero hour now. I don't know if we get this. This is zero hour. I said it last week, I'll say it again. The days of darkness are upon us. Daniel 11.32 says, It is the people who know their God who will display strength and do mighty, mighty exploits. Our scripture reading today was Hebrews chapter 3. I want to go back to Hebrews chapter 3 to close. Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 3. In Hebrews chapter 3, the writer of Hebrews is talking about how Christ is superior to Moses and talks about the great exodus of Israel from Egypt. And quoting from Psalm 95 7 in verse 7. The writer of Hebrews says this, "Today Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, when your fathers tried me by testing me, and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore I was angry with this generation, and said they always go astray in their heart, and they do not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Rest is a term for salvation in the Old Testament. What was God saying? I swore in my wrath, this people who rejected me would not enter my salvation. It's estimated that there were about one and a half million to as many as three million Jews who left Egypt. And that entire generation died in the wilderness. That means that that peninsula was littered with the carcasses of people who failed to believe. How do I know? Well, going down to verse 19. And so we see they were not able to enter, meaning the rest of God, because of unbelief. Wait, weren't these the same people that when they saw the Egyptian army being... uh, drowned in the Red Sea that they sang? Oh, the horse and the rider cast into the sea. God has done many wonders. Did they not see the manna fall from heaven? Did they not see water flow from the rock? Didn't they see quails when they wanted meat? When they asked God for the snake to stop biting them and the infection of snakes, did they not look at the pole and all who looked at the pole, the snakes that invited did they not see the miracles and participate in the miracles of God? And yet we see they died in the wilderness. They died in their sin. May no one who hears this message I don't care if you've been a church member for 50 years. If you've not come to that place of repentance and faith in Christ, please, 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 I beg you. The Scripture begs you. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Enter in. Christ, turn from your sin. Turn to Him and be saved. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Father, as we come to You this morning, Lord, and we're about to prepare our hearts to partake at the Lord's table. Father, may there not be one, not one here, who would turn their hearts from believing in the eternal God and the only Savior, Jesus Christ. Your word is very, very clear that all who come to you, you will not despise. It doesn't matter what our past was, Lord. Lord. It doesn't matter the volume of sin we had committed. All that matters, Lord, is that we turn to you in repentance and faith. For Father, 1 John 1-7 tells us, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Father, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.